0: So, perhaps you know the story. Boy meets girl, they spend all their time together. He buys her gifts. When they part ways after a nice date together, they text all the way home. If they have a fight, they forgive one another quickly. They are so close to one another. Then they marry, and things go well. They have life Together, they have kids, life gets busy. They forget each other's birthday sometimes. They have a few fights along the way, but nobody screams or throws things. But sooner or later, the day comes when they realize that all the hopes and dreams they see in their wedding pictures are nowhere to be found. Sadly, one of them starts sleeping on the couch or in front of the TV. Their lives become like two parallel lines. Very close to one another, but never touching. What happened? This couple has forgotten the importance of their love for one another. Well, in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, where we're going to be this morning, Jesus is confronting the church at Ephesus in a similar situation because the church there has forgotten this simple truth love for God must occupy first place. In the life of every believer, let me say that again. Love for God must occupy first place in the life of every believer. Now, before we read, I want to give you a little bit of context. If you weren't here last time, this will help to catch you up. The book of Revelation is set on the island of Patmos, where the Apostle John is serving an indefinite sentence for a crime. The crime is listed in verse 9 of chapter 1 he says he was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John just wouldn't shut up about Jesus. That was why he is on the island of Patmos. And him confronting uh, the culture around him has cost him his freedom. So he's out there on Patmos, kind of like Alcatraz, where you stick everybody that you want away from you. And while he is there, he is praying And he hears a voice. And that voice says in verse 11 of chapter 1, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And so Jesus is the one who is speaking to John. And John has this vision, this picture of Jesus that absolutely terrifies him. Now, this is ironic because of all of the disciples, John is the one who was closest to Jesus in a lot of ways. John was so comfortable being around Jesus that during the Last Supper, John actually lays his head back on Jesus' chest. But on the island of Patmos, this is a completely different story because he sees the glorified risen Lord. And now he is falling on his face before Jesus in verse 19, Jesus reassures him and tells him this, that he is supposed to write the things that he sees, some of which are for now and some which are to take place. So we're going to be in this first scene over the next uh, couple of weeks um, during our time in Revelation 1 through 3 as Jesus tells John to write these letters to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia, which is now part of the country of Turkey. So before we read uh, this this first letter, I want to give you kind of a a little bit of form background here in terms of the way that these letters work, the way that they structurally look. And Ray has created a great graphic for us here that will help you to see that. So each letter has many of these ingredients, and they all kind of unfold in this order. First of which is we get an, an addressee, a person that the letter is being sent to. This is one of the seven churches. And then we see a description of Jesus, which is generally rooted in the description of Jesus found in chapter 1. What follows then is a commendation. If there is anything for Jesus to commend in that church, then he shares with them what they are doing well. After that follows a rebuke. Some churches don't get a rebuke, but many of them do. So Jesus is correcting something that is going on um, in, in that church. What follows then is a solution to the problem that Jesus is addressing, and then a consequence. What is going to happen to this church if they do not repent, if they do not turn to the Lord for help? Lastly, we see a promise. Jesus unfolds what is going to happen for them if they choose to follow him. So that structure you're going to see throughout each of the seven letters that we walk through. Now, it's interesting because these letters are a little different than uh, what we see in the rest of the New Testament. Because they are something a little bit more like a royal edict or a decree. You see, the king of all things is having his scribe, John, put down in writing what he wants to say to these churches who are part of his kingdom. These letters are part of a larger letter, as we saw in chapter 1. Revelation is really almost like a big letter to these seven churches in Asia Minor. But it's interesting, these these seven letters are also uh, like prophetic messages in the Old Testament, where God calls people back to covenant faithfulness. Now, if you're new to the Bible, uh, covenant is simply this. It is God freely establishing a mutually binding relationship with humankind. Let me say that again for you if you're taking notes. God Covenant is God freely establishing a mutually binding relationship with humankind. So the prophets in the Old Testament were there to remind God's people of what they were supposed to be doing in response to what God had done for them. So this, this letter is something like a prophetic letter as well. So let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we begin to read through the letters to the the Ephesian church. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, which teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains us in righteousness. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see you in this text this morning. We want to know what you have done for us. We want to know how you want us to respond. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us clearly through your word today. Uh, Lord, that you would move this messenger out of the way and that your spirit would do the talking to people's hearts today. We thank you, Lord, for being here with us, that you have not deserted us, and that you continue to speak through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So we need to talk for a moment about the church at Ephesus. It is actually the church of these seven that we have the most biblical data on. So let me run through uh, that information real quickly with you to to summarize it. In Acts chapter 18, Paul, during his second missionary journey, uh, preaches in the synagogue at Ephesus for three months. And then afterwards, he's finding the ministry to be so fruitful that he actually rents a a lecture hall called the Hall of Tyrannus for two years. So this is the longest um, place that Paul stays of any church in in the New Testament while he's on his missionary journeys. And while he is there, God does extraordinary ministry and miracles through Paul. Uh, One of the things that happens that's recorded in the book of Acts is that handkerchiefs that are laid on Paul's uh, body are then taken to um, sick people and people that are demonized. Uh, And those sick people are made well, and those demonized people are released from their bondage. Now, I know that makes sound very foreign and crazy to us, but but God is a supernatural God, and he can use any means that he chooses. So uh, with all of this amazing stuff that's happening in terms of signs and wonders and the powerful gospel that is being preached, people are responding to Jesus. They are excited about the Lord, so much so that their lives begin to change. And uh, the people of Ephesus are very into false worship. And one of the means that they use to worship their gods are these magic scrolls. And so they bring these scrolls um, out in in the middle of the city, and they actually have a big bonfire, and they burn those suckers. Uh, So all of this false worship is going out up in flames. Not only that, but there is a business... Uh, surrounding the temple of Artemis, which is this huge structure for the goddess uh, Artemis. And uh, it is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So people come from all over the place uh, to worship there. So there's this business there that is selling these little uh, souvenirs. Of, of, uh, of the Temple of Artemis that are made out of silver. And so people come and they, they're able to bring a little bit of Artemis home with them. What a wonderful thing, right? Uh, they get these, these uh, silver souvenirs. But as people begin to respond to the gospel, suddenly nobody wants to buy Temple of Artemis souvenirs anymore. They all want to hear about Jesus. So the economy is disrupted by the gospel. Now that would be an amazing thing to see in our day and time, amen? Amen. That would be incredible. So good day at work, right, for the Holy Spirit through Paul. That's that's an awesome, awesome thing that God is doing there. And then because of that, um, a riot breaks out. The silversmiths silversmiths stir everybody up in town, and they they start a a big riot, and Paul barely escapes with his life. So in Acts chapter 20, um, Paul wants to meet with the Ephesian elders. He doesn't go to Ephesus. He meets them at a place called Miletus. And he warns them that fierce wolves, these are false teachers, are going to come in from among... Actually, they're going to be, rise up from among the people in the Ephesian church. And they will come among them to devour the flock. So they're going to hurt the church. Paul is warning them with that. If that wasn't enough... Paul writes a letter to them, which we have in our Bible, the book of Ephesians, which we just studied at a, that amazing men's conference. Guys, I think next year, uh, instead of just singing sea shanties, we need to like actually like build a ship and sail to Eden shores. That would be, that would be a great group product, right? Anyway, um, so you've got the letter to the Ephesians that is written. And then 1st and 2nd Timothy are written to Timothy from Paul while Timothy is one of the pastors at Ephesus. If that weren't enough, the Gospel of John is probably written by the Apostle John during John's time as a pastor in the church at Ephesus. So you've got Paul establishing, helping to establish the church. You've got Timothy following up and shoring up the work that has been done at Ephesus. And then you have You know, just just the Apostle John uh, come along, and he pastors the church at Ephesus there. So we have this amazing record of God's work, the church uh, in the city of Ephesus. So that's a little bit of background. Let's look at the second part of verse 1, this description of Jesus, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, if you're the kind of person who doesn't like a lot of uh, symbolism in your, in your biblical literature, I know your, your, your brain is like fragmenting and falling out of, out of uh, your ears right now. You probably want to run and scream out of the room. But Jesus actually tells us what's going on. If we look back at um, chapter 1, verse 120, he explains what the seven stars are and what the seven lampstands are. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. If you want to hear more about that, make sure you listen to Brent's sermon from last week. And then the seven lampstands represent each one of the seven churches that uh, that Jesus is writing these letters to. So we see here Jesus in his biggest possible terms, his glorified form. Uh, this is not Jesus meek and mild. This is Jesus large and ruling over all things. He is he is restoring all things to himself, and he is writing to uh, the book. Uh, excuse me, he's writing the book of Revelation to these seven churches. And we see him in this uh, picture walking among the seven lampstands. So if each of the seven lampstands represents one of the churches, Jesus is walking among the churches themselves. And this shows us two things about Jesus' um, Jesus's attention to the church. Number one is that Jesus is authoritative. Jesus is in charge. He's ruling over these churches. The situations that they find themselves in, are uh, are known to Jesus. And he is active and at work in making sure that that his church is purified. So Jesus has authority over his church. Jesus is also demonstrating concern for his church. Imagine a shepherd walking among his sheep to make sure that all of them are healthy. They're uh, They're not sick in any way. They're getting all of the food that they need. Or a farmer walking along the rows of his crops to making sure that the the weeds aren't taking over and that they're not being eaten up by some sort of disease. Or imagine a manager, a construction manager, walking around a building to making sure that everything uh, is being done according to code, that, that the plan is proceeding in the direction that it should. This is the kind of concern that Jesus has for the churches. And so he is walking among these seven lampstands. Praise God that Jesus sees the good work that his people are doing. Let's look here in verses 2 through 3 for the commendation. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. So a couple of things that Jesus points out here to the church at Ephesus. Number one is that the Ephesian church is working hard. Now you can imagine this is not easy in the shadow of the temple of Artemis. There's people coming in and out all of the time engaging in false worship. And yet the the Ephesian church is here faithfully working hard, training people in the faith meeting regularly, they are gutting it out for Jesus in Ephesus. Jesus also points out that the Ephesians are enduring for the sake of Jesus' name. So they continue to work in the Lord even though they are weary. Even though they're tired, they press on. They live in the middle of this wicked culture that is wearing them down, but they continue on in the faith. They're not giving way to a temptation to false worship. One of the things that Rome liked to do during this time was to bring everybody together in terms of some kind of religious tradition. So one of the things that they started at one point was this worship of the emperor. So everybody would uh, get together and they would, uh, they would present a little pinch of incense on an altar of incense as a, as an, as a way of respecting and honoring this deified emperor. Life would have gone a lot easier for the Ephesian church if they would have compromised in some ways in terms of their worship. But the Ephesian church is hanging on. They refuse to engage in false worship. They refuse to offer that pinch of incense. The Ephesians are also rejecting false teaching as it comes to them. They have listened well to Paul's instruction in Acts chapter 20. In verse 6 of this chapter, we're going to see that they are described as hating the work of a group called the Nicolaitans. We don't know a lot about this group, uh, but they're probably a group that is engaging in sexual immorality as part of their worship uh, or some other forms of false worship. So the wolves have indeed shown themselves in the Ephesian church, and the church has shut them down. They have not allowed them a place uh, in, in the body of Christ there at Ephesus. So you can imagine the Ephesian church and their reaction uh, to some of the false teaching that is coming to them, You know, just like we see throughout the New Testament record. Uh, imagine someone comes to them and says, uh, it's, it's circumcision plus Jesus that saves you, right? And they're like, nope, not in this church. Uh, or they're like, you know what? Jesus was just a, a spirit who, who looked like a man, right? Nope, out you go. Or uh, Jesus was just a man who was adopted by God to be his son, right? Nope, we're going to give you the right foot of fellowship. Out you go. Or maybe they come to him and say, you know, we we should worship angels. Angels are really important, right? Ephesians church is like, nope, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Or maybe someone comes to them and says, there's a secret knowledge of God, right? That you can only receive through dreams and visions, right? Wait right here while I reload says the Ephesian church, right? So this is, this is one to grow on for, for our present church in our culture as we look at what Jesus commends in the Ephesian church, because our churches can get kind of mushy in the middle, right? Sometimes we feel like, I just need a break from church. Church exhausts me sometimes. There's so much going on all of the time. Uh, I, I need t- time away, just some me time for, uh, for myself. I just want to not be at church for a little while. People want to take a break. Also, within our current culture, it's easier sometimes, isn't it, not to speak up and confront the culture because you run the risk of people criticizing you, misjudging you, or even slandering you. And it's challenging to confront false teaching especially when you hear it from the lips of a dear friend of yours who begins to stand up and speak things that are in error in terms of what the Bible says or are heretical and are actually destructive to them and to those that hear it. However, All of these things uh, that the Ephesian church is doing, they're doing well, but there's something that they are missing. Think back to that marriage in trouble that I described at the beginning of the sermon. Those people could be doing a lot of the right things. This man could be providing well for his family. Uh, The wife could be taking good care of their home and their kids, and yet there's something missing in that relationship. Jesus sees that something missing in his church in Ephesus, and he points it out in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. So that the church in Ephesus, their hearts have abandoned the Lord. Now, isn't this ironic when you consider what we just heard about the history of the Ephesian church? If there was anybody that should have known better, it would have been the Ephesians with that, with that spiritual pedigree um, that they have. And yet they have lost their love for Jesus. Now, we don't know what has snuck in and caused this in their hearts. Just thinking about our, our own lives, maybe we can guess. Uh, maybe it was anger at God for some sad events uh, that took place in their lives. Sometimes that can happen for us could have been a focus uh, that they had on themselves all of the time, where they're justifying themselves by their works. Or perhaps it was the idolatry of having correct theology. We can be so focused on having correct theology sometimes that we forget who that theology is supposed to be directed towards and how that theology is supposed to be used to serve other people. It can actually become an idol in our lives. So, hard work cannot replace our love for God. Endurance cannot replace love for God. Even rejecting false teaching cannot replace love for God. Some of you guys are already thinking about 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. Let's go ahead and go there. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So Paul, it's like he's been reading the mail of this, this Ephesian church, right? What has happened to it? It has gained knowledge. And yet it is lost to love for the Lord. Think about also what Jesus says in the great commandment. Mark 12, verses 30 through 31. Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. He says, The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus says that the commandment with the greatest weight in the whole Bible, has to do with our love for God. Now, there's a great deal of argument as you read commentaries as to what what this means that that the love for God has been abandoned. What does that look like? Maybe it is a, a love for neighbor that has been neglected. That's what some think. And there's an argument for that from Scripture, right? Look at how closely neighbor love follows that love for God in the great commandment. Or in 1 John, uh, same author as as this book, uh, 1 John 4, verses 20 through 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So these things are tied, they're linked. A love for God means that we are going to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to love others because God has first loved us. They're going to follow. Or perhaps um, this love for God that's been abandoned has to do with proclaiming the gospel to others because that's certainly something that the Ephesian church was doing. We know of at least two churches uh, that are planted in the New Testament record out of this great love for God that the Ephesian church once had. Or maybe it's some other act of obedience. Uh, after all, obedience follows love for God. Look at John 14, verse 15 with me. Jesus is saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So love for God means that we are going to obey the Lord. We're going to do the things that he wants done. We're going to love the things that he loves. We're going to hate the things that we hates. And we are going to follow Jesus in whatever he tells us to do. Or perhaps this love for God that is being deserted in the Ephesian church has to do with our heart and our affections for the Lord in worship and thanks. David gives us a great example of this in Psalm 63, verses one through three. He says, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So, David is sharing his immense spiritual hunger that he has for God, that he wants to know him, that he wants to, to grow in his relationship with him. It's like a thirst that can't be quenched by anything but God. And then, as he looks upon God, In all of his power and his glory, he's satisfied. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. He's comparing his life to the love of the Lord. And he says, if you just give me one, if you have to give me a choice between these two, I'm going to pick the Lord. I would rather have the Lord than to be alive. That's a very strong statement of worship and affection for God Himself. So all, all of these things perhaps could be the case. They all have to do with this idea of loving God. And there are so many different ways that we can lose our love for the Lord. Might have been any one or combination of these things. Well, praise God that Jesus not only sees uh, the problem, but he also seeks to restore his people. Let's look at verse 5. Jesus says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So as Jesus seeks to restore his people, he says three things. Number one, he says, remember the place from which you've fallen. Remember the place that you've fallen from. So, These are so applicable, we don't even have to think about what it might have meant for the Ephesian church. We can can read this directly to us, right? Imagine, if you've lost your love for the Lord, where were you with God before you lost your love for him? What was your relationship like before? How did you love God? How did you express that love for him? This idea of remembrance, remembering, comes from covenant language. We talked about covenant earlier. But every time that the people of Israel in the Old Testament get in a scrape, they call out to God and they say, God, remember your covenant with your people. And now God is turning that around. Jesus says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Remember what it means to walk with me daily. So for us, this is simply remembering the gospel and how Jesus saves us. I love to do this as I pray. To remember where I was when Jesus brought me back through to himself. The fact that I was in spiritual darkness away from Him, I was really a lot like the Ephesian church. Having all of this knowledge and all of this understanding. This, this kind of spiritual background. And yet God had to come and snatch me out of darkness. I love Daniel's phrase there from that sermon in Jude to snatch you up. That's what Jesus did for me. I love to think about what Jesus has done for me. That's what it means to remember. The second thing that Jesus says uh, to his church is that he wants them to repent. Do you see the implication here? It means if he's telling them to repent, then there is a sin that they need to turn from. And that sin is not loving the Lord. Not loving God is a sin. It means if, if, there's, if we are not loving God, that there is something that we are loving in his place. Because make no mistake, there is something in that first place slot in our lives. We have given that place to something else. So Jesus says, turn back, turn back to the Lord. Look at Jeremiah 2, verse 2 with me. God is speaking to his people, Israel. He says, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. He's saying, I remember what it was like when I was your God and you were my people. And I'm going to remind you of the height from which you have fallen, Jerusalem. You were like a bride that followed me around in the wilderness in a land not sown. This is a great picture, of of course, of our second point of of our discipleship process, devotion. The first point is, God loves us. We receive the message of the gospel that God loved us in Christ, and we respond to that uh, in point number two, in devotion. We say, Lord, I love you, and I want to follow you. I want to know who you are. Because there's not a there's a a false dichotomy sometimes that people make between sound doctrine and a love for God, okay? Jesus is absolutely correcting the Ephesian uh, church. They have fallen into a ditch. But sound doctrine is there to help us to stay in the love of the Lord. It helps us to see who the God is that we're worshiping. As we look into what scripture says about salvation, it completes our understanding of what Jesus has done for us. And it humbles us. And it encourages us to grow in our relationship with the Lord. So we want to know more about Jesus. We want to grow in our relationship with him. That is point number two in our discipleship process that responding to God. The third thing that Jesus tells the church at Ephesus that he wants them to do is to do the works, do the works that you did at first. He's saying, I want you to act in accordance with your repentance. If you say that you repent, then I want you to do something about that. Your actions need to change. Sometimes we say we're sorry, but we're not really sorry. In our minds, we're kind of saying, yeah, and I would do that same thing again if I had the choice. Um, I have no remorse for what I did. I'm just sorry that I got caught. But in real repentance, our actions begin to change with that repentance. Think about this from the example of, of the city of Ephesus. It's a big city, 250,000 people uh, living in that area uh, of Ephesus. And the thing that it was known for was this great harbor that it has. It, is, it opened out into the ocean. Uh, but the harbor uh, had its own problem because there was a river that ran uh, that ran out into the harbor, it was almost like a delta. And all of this silt from this river called the Kaster River would flow down the river and then it would dump out in the harbor. And over time this silt would build up and it would make it difficult for ships to actually come in and trade. And so there's this work that had to be done um, in, in the city of Ephesus to dredge up all of this silt and to move it elsewhere so that commerce would be able to take place in that great harbor. This can be like passion for us because there's, it's not just us receiving the message of the gospel and responding and saying, Lord, I want to know you. It's, I've got to do something about this. I have to act and serve the Lord in some way that with this life that he's given me, with these breath that he's put in my lungs. I want to do something for Jesus. He's been so good to me. So this can be like the third point of passion Right? In our discipleship process, we serve others because Jesus has served us so well in the gospel. Now we see also here in verse 5, there is a conditional promise of judgment. A conditional promise of judgment. Jesus is saying, look, if you don't repent, something is going to happen. So let's look at that in the second half of verse 5. He says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is frightening mail to receive from Jesus, the Lord over all things, right? I'm going to remove your lampstand unless you repent. So regardless of how you interpret what that means, this should put a little bit of of fear in our bones. It could mean that the Ephesian church is going to lose their status as a church. They're going to essentially fall off that big map that we saw that they're no longer going to be a point uh, of of light as a church. Or it could mean that they're going to lose their influence as a church. So often in the New Testament, we see light as as the proclamation of the gospel. They're going to lose their ability to communicate to that culture because they don't have that love for the Lord in their hearts. Now, I love the the TV series Designated Survivor. Uh, with Keith Suther, Sutherland, it's a hard word for me to say today. Kiefer Sutherland, um, he's, he's kind of a, a toned down version of Jack Bauer uh, in that in that show. Uh, but he, he plays a guy who becomes uh, the president, and uh, I love through 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 that show all of the people who work around them have this this phrase that they use. They serve. They say we serve at the pleasure of the president. In other words, if the president. Uh, can find use for us, then we're happy about that. And, And we're happy to serve and do whatever he wants us to do. But at a certain point, if the president no longer finds us useful, then off we go. And that's fine because we're there to serve the president. Well, church, we serve at the pleasure of King Jesus. We have the great blessing and benefit of serving the king of the universe. And Jesus wants us to know, as we look at this passage, that nobody is guaranteed a legacy. Now, legacy is one of our four points. We talk about how that means that uh, love lives on. We want the the message of the gospel to live on through the life of our church. But a legacy is only as good as the next generation of people that you train up. And we can lose that legacy, church, if we do not love the Lord himself. Now, he does give them some encouragement here in verse 6, another little attaboy. Uh, he says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he's saying, look, you're, 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 you're not loving me the way that you should have, but at least you're hating the right things. You hate these people who are teaching uh, false doctrine. And so he's encouraging them with that. What follows then is a conditional promise of blessing. Let's look at that in verse seven. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So there's this phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear. This is used throughout the New Testament. uh, And it's this wonderful statement that shows us something about the sovereignty of God and salvation, that God saves people From every tribe, tongue, and nation, he's the one who comes all the way down to us and pulls us out of darkness and brings us out into light. And yet, at the same time, there's a responsibility that he gives to each person who hears his word. He said, "I want you to use those spiritual ears that I've given to you. So listen up." Now, it's interesting in in the the Hebrew and also in the Greek language that these that uh, the Bible is written in, um, that that hearing and obeying are linked in their terminology. So the uh, the, the word used here for hear is the verb akuo, where we get acoustics from, and that word akuo, depending on the the, um, the context, can be translated as to hear or to obey. There's this connection between if you really hear someone. You're going to act. You're going to do something out of that hearing. So if you hear Jesus today, you're going to respond in some way in your life. Now, interestingly, there's this mention of the tree of life. Where's the first time that we see mentioned a tree of life? The book of Genesis, right? The Garden of Eden. And in the beginning, Adam and Eve and humankind had access to that tree. But instead of enjoying the fruit that God had given to us, we preferred to go our own way. We failed to love God as he loved us. And so the message of the gospel is that God sent his son on a rescue mission. This same Jesus that we see, this big Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, comes to earth, but not in his glorified form, This is not how he came to us at first. He comes in weakness instead. This is what we celebrate during the Advent season, that God sent his son in weakness to us in order to save us. So as a little baby, he comes, born in the equivalent of a barn, laid in a feed trough for a bed. Jesus would grow and he would live the perfect life that you and I cannot live. a a life that is worthy of eating from the tree of life. We had done nothing to deserve that anymore. As a matter of fact, we were barred from the tree of life. But Jesus could have taken and eaten from that tree of life because of the life that he lives. But instead, Jesus chooses a tree of death, a cross, a Roman cross that he would be nailed to. And after his death, he he would rise three days later with all of the power that is needed to restore all things in his nail-scarred hands. You see, this is Jesus' endgame, to restore all things to himself, to bring everything back under his rule and reign the way that it should be. In Revelation 21, verse 5, he says this, he says, Behold, I am making all things new. So all of the ways in which sin has corrupted our world. He's going to burn out. He's going to root out as part of his salvation plan. Jesus wants us to eat from the tree of life. That's what he says here in verse 7. Without the payment for our sin being made for us by us and without us having to pay the price of our restoration. Verse 7 tells us that Jesus wants us to live as conquerors over sin and self through the power of his Holy Spirit. So, perhaps you are here this morning and you look at your life and you can say, you know what? Honestly, I have never loved Jesus. I've never loved him. I have been trying to fight him with my whole life. Trying to do things my way. And I need to tell you this morning that your sin, turning away from God in that way, has earned you judgment at his hand. The good news is that just as he offered the church at Ephesus, Jesus offers you forgiveness and a way back to him. So I want to encourage you, if that's you today, don't harden your heart to God's offer. Let Jesus give you a new heart and a new life with him. Because I'll tell you this, everyone that God speaks to will be held accountable for what they hear those of us who are believers today and those who are not. Now, for those of us who do belong to Jesus, many of us have lost our love for the Lord. We have allowed other things to take his place. Some of us have tried to find justification in our theology or in our hard work. Church, it's time for us to repent and to turn back to the Lord. Jesus offers us renewal, just as he does the church here in Ephesus. One of the best pieces of advice that I got when I was starting uh, my seminary classes is, is that someone said, look, you're going to encounter some amazing things as you, as you study Greek and Hebrew, as you study theology, as you, as you study the books of the Bible in depth. Uh, you're going to see some amazing things, but there are going to be points at which you just need to push all of the books back, all of the learning back, And just raise your hands and stand in awe of who Jesus is. Because all that we learn, all that we know, all that we work for has to be directed towards him. All has to be about him, church. It needs to be worship to him. Now, four points. The Lord is using us as a church. There are new families that come in uh, week in and week out. Praise God, we continue to reach those families with the gospel. And we're excited to be a part of planting new campuses. Hopefully, uh, in, in, in the, over the next year, we'll be raising up a, a new campus here in this area. And also, planting churches in Ecuador. We're glad to be a part of that work. I believe that God wants us to continue to use us. Our lampstand is still burning bright for the Lord. But with all of our service, and all of our pursuit of sound doctrine, we cannot lose our focus. We cannot lose our love for Jesus himself. Now the good news, the happy ending to the story uh, of Ephesus that we see from church history is that second century witnesses uh, like uh, this man Ignatius uh, tell us that Ephesus did indeed repent and they kept their lampstand burning strong uh, for Jesus until at least the fourth century. uh, The last Big thing that happens in the life of the church of Ephesus is that the third ecumenical council, which dealt with the two heresies of Nestorianism and Pelagianism, was held in Ephesus. So God used the church there in Ephesus. He restored them. And the story tells us that Jesus offers grace for those who have lost their love for him. Don't be discouraged. If that's your story this morning... Jesus offers restoration as he does the restoration of all things. So four points. Let's be that church that remembers the height from which we've fallen, that repents and then does the work that we did at first. Let's be the church that loves the Lord and lets all of the other things be directed by our love for Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, This is a busy life. It is easy for us to get distracted. It's also easy for us to get jaded and disaffected with you. And Lord, that is to our shame. We confess that we very quickly look to other things in that first place slot in our lives. We need for you to help us to restore you to your proper place in our lives. We repent this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to trust you to really see you in your power and glory, what you've done for us in the cross, in the empty tomb. Lord, restore our heart for you. In Jesus' name, amen.